Good morning, my name is Mark, and this morning we're going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14. And it starts off here in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafriam in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all want to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to the th these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Thank you, Mark. Reads like today's newspapers. <laughs> Potential for trouble this morning is high. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for your word that, that speaks into our lives. It's, it, it helps us to understand life and the world and politics and why things are happening the way they are. And, um, and so we're grateful for that. And Lord, as we work our way through this particular chapter, we pray that uh, Lord, we would be encouraged and instructed. Lord, for anyone that doesn't know you uh, in this place this morning, we pray that they would be reconciled to you through Christ, through his death on the cross today, and that there'd be no more putting it off or waiting uh, until they accomplish this or that, but that today's the day. And so speak to us through the word now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're back in Nehemiah, obviously, and uh, just to sort of catch us all up or reorient us to the book, um, it's amazing how a book written about 2,500 years ago, it mirrors our time and our situation, like amazingly, as we're going to see. Nehemiah served the king of the Persian Empire, Persia being Iran, and Artaxerxes was his name. And, uh, and, and Nehemiah would eventually go to Israel and become the governor of the region there. But Nehemiah, previous to going to Israel, was a cupbearer in King Artaxerxes' uh, palace. Now, cupbearer, it sounds like you work at a restaurant or something. But in fact, cupbearer was a very high-level government job. It was a very important position. Uh, the cupbearer to the king, it was a 
place of great responsibility and privilege and prestige. It was a person who would be in the presence of the king on a daily basis, and so they had to be good-looking, they had to be cultured, they had to be educated, they had to be able to converse with the king about serious matters, they had to be able to advise the king, and because he had constant access to the king, he was a man of great influence. Nehemiah would be wealthy, he would be famous in the Persian Empire. So Nehemiah was Jewish, however, remember 160 years prior, the Jews were taken captive. Nehemiah was Jewish, had never been to Israel, never been to Jerusalem. Uh, he lived in Iran his entire life, but a little more than 160 years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the previous empire, uh, the Babylonian empire, which today is Iraq, by the way, uh, he would invade Israel, he would take some people captive, the best and the brightest of Israel. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel were among that first group taken. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would invade two more times, and the third time he would go into Israel, he would destroy Jerusalem and level the temple. And so the, uh, as prophesied, the Jews would be in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Uh, and so, in 539 BC, a Persian king, Persia had conquered Babylon, now it's the Persian Empire, and the Persian king Cyrus took power and he issued a decree that the Jews were now free. They had been in bondage for 70 years, but they're now free to return to their homeland. And so Isaiah actually prophesied this that Cyrus would do this by name before Cyrus existed. It's one of the most powerful prophecies in the Bible. And so about 50,000 Jews living in Babylon uh, of, of about two million left the Babylonian uh, area and they went back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. They were led by a guy named Zerubbabel and uh, they got to work on the temple when they got there and they started building the foundation of the temple. It took about two years, they completed the foundation, but because there was a lot of uh, enemy animosity and attack and there was all a, a, a pulling away of the resources and the funding, they abandoned the work after two years. And so the temple foundation laid there for about another 20 years and then finally, they continued the work and it was completed in about 516 BC. But Jerusalem was still a mess. Yes, the temple's rebuilt, but the city is a dump. Crime was rampant. Inflation out of control. The temple, the, the Old Testament version of the church, yes, it was built, but it was closed because there was so much danger. There was so much trouble in the area. God's people were discouraged. God's people were despised. It was a terrible situation. So God calls this Jewish man, Nehemiah, who is serving in the Persian king's palace to come to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. And that is the central part of the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had the backing of his government, the Persian government. He was made governor by decree of the region by Artaxerxes. His campaign message was, we're gonna build the wall, it'll be the most beautiful wall you've ever seen. Persia's gonna pay for it. <laughs> and as soon as Nehemiah, <laughs> okay, yeah, you caught that. So, as soon as Nehemiah, shows up, the work of the building of the wall gets going, attacks started happening. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are kind of the three primary antagonists in the story, three regional political leaders. They're threatening to kill Nehemiah and kill the Jews. Sanballat was a Samaritan, Tobiah an Ammonite, Geshem an Arab. Uh, they were essentially the Hamas and the Hezbollah uh, of their day. They did not want to see Jerusalem thriving. They did not want to see the Jews flourishing. Uh, and so they sprung into action to, to try and stop it. Now we've been witness to, to the same type of thing today. It's, it's in the news every day. And it's widely known, now you think about this, this whole 
you know, sickening attack that happened a couple months ago now. Hamas invading Israel and slaughtering people in the most grotesque uh, ways imaginable. It's widely known that Saudi Arabia has been considering joining the Abraham Accords. So the Abraham Accords were spearheaded by the United States, our President Trump at the time, who basically worked with Israel and four Arab countries to join and normalize relationship with Israel. And so four countries signed on, and it was an amazing thing that got really no coverage or fanfare. It was really the, 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 the greatest diplomatic political move of our time. And so Saudi Arabia, the, the word was, they're, they're, on, they're getting ready to. They want to join. They're not fans of Iran. They, they want to bring more stability into the region. And so Saudi Arabia is on the verge and so on. Iran knows this. Hezbollah and Hamas, and Hamas are proxies of Iran. Iran funds them. I, Iran pulls their strings. And so on October 7th, Hamas goes into action, a plan that had been brewing perhaps for years. The greatest atrocity, the most death of the Jews since the Holocaust in a single day. When the enemy sees action and progress, he will do anything to stop it. What's true politically and geopolitically is also true spiritually. When, when you answer the call of God on your life, you can expect the enemy of your soul will spring into action. It, it's just true. You can expect Sanballas and Tobias are going to show up in your life. And like Nehemiah's situation, the attacks, they may manifest uh, in flesh and blood relationships, but they originate in the realm of the spirit. And that's where the real fight resides. That's where the real arena is where we fight. Now, I know this might cause somebody to think, well, then I just won't answer the call of God on my life and uh, Satan will leave me alone. I mean, there's certain logic to that. I, I, I get it. And, and there may even be some truth to that. I'm not totally convinced about that, but let's, let's presume that it is. So we may think, okay, why would Satan expend energy on someone who just isn't interested in following God or serving God or doing, doing anything for the Lord in their life anyway, right? So if we suppose that's true, the, the upside then for you, if you're going to go, yeah, I'm going to, you know, try and have a comfortable life and just not get Satan involved, you know? And uh, so, so the upside of that is that you get to kind of maintain the illusion of control over your life. You don't have to give over control to Jesus and call him Lord. That's what really what happens when you're saved, right? You're you're releasing control of your life to him. That's what calling him Lord means. You're my king, my master, the one to whom I pledge allegiance, the one to whom I obey. So you get to do what you want then, sort of, in a limited, pathetic, kind of meaningless way. But you get to do what you want. Now, there's an upside for Satan as well in that he doesn't have to expend this energy on somebody who's all fired up for God and doing great things in the world. Right? So it's a win-win. It's you kind of hand him a win by deciding you're not going to answer the call of God on your life. And uh, so it's a win-win in kind of a temporary, delusional, twisted, not true kind of way. So I'll, I'll grant you that. Now the downside is you squander your life and you end up in hell with your buddy, El Diablo. The Greek word for that kind of thinking, by the way, is uh, idiote. <clears throat> and you may, and I get it, you know, you might, you might be one of those that just really is sailing through life and, you know, you're gifted, you're brilliant, you're talented, you've got plans, you're going to make a billion and start companies and travel the world and be philanthropic and do good things and all the rest. Suppose all of those dreams come true, that, that, you, that everything you're going after happens and more. Apparently, that, that kind of life isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And, and I've, got a, I've got some 
insight on that. I heard Elon Musk, richest or one of the richest guys on planet Earth, was asked about his life on a podcast a week or so ago, and he said this, quote, I don't think most people would want to be me. They may think they want to be me, but they don't know and they don't understand. And he said his mind is a storm. It's just, there's no peace there. Now, we didn't have to hear Elon Musk say that if you're a Christian here this morning because we've heard Solomon say that in the Old Testament. He was a billionaire back in the day when a billion really was a billion. And he's like, it's all meaningless. Life is meaningless under the sun. So Jesus said, what will it profit a person if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his soul? I mean, ultimately, what, what is the meaning? So you build up your, bio, your pile of cash, you do you know, these things, and then you die. So it's counterintuitive, but here's, here's the path to life. You know, Jesus said in that same passage, he who uh, seeks to save or gain his life will lose it. There's the forfeiting of the soul. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So that's what Jesus invites you to this morning, losing your life to him, giving your life to him. And in giving your life to him, yes, you lose your, your self-determinative prerogatives the way you understand that. Uh, you, you cease being your own king and Jesus becomes your king. And let me tell you something, Bob Dylan said it best, you're gonna have to serve somebody. So the truth is, though, every human being, Jesus follower or not, is, will have their share of battles to fight in this life. But it's only when, you're, when you give your life to the Lord, answer his call on your life, that you enter what the Bible calls the good fight. The good fight. It's the, the one fight that matters, that has eternal uh, implications to it. So faithfulness in the good fight results in eternal glory and joy with the true King, Jesus Christ. So that's the fight you want to be involved with. So Nehemiah answers the call on his life, enters the good fight. Three things for us to consider this morning from our passage, if we can get to them. Number one, wise leaders. Listen up, leaders. And most of you are in some kind of place of leadership. Wise leaders must be discerning, discerning, discernment. Verse one, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work, I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So, the wall is fully built. However, there are no gates and doors hung yet. And so, when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem heard about the progress that the wall is now fully complete, but the gates aren't in, they tried to get Nehemiah to pause. Stop the work. Stop your mission. So they invited him to a meeting. Let's have a meeting. Let's talk about it. Let's perhaps, you know, come to some sort of two-state solution here. The plain of Ono was about 30 miles northwest or so of Jerusalem. It was kind of a middle ground, a halfway point amongst these rulers and their peoples and so on. And so, so let's meet in the middle, they were saying. Let's come, let's meet in the middle. Let's sort out our differences. That seems to be the idea. Hey, Nehemiah, come meet with us. You've been working really hard. Take a break, get a little R&R. Perhaps we can, we can come to some kind of agreement here. So Nehemiah says, I'm busy. <laughs> My calendar's full. 
I've got things to do. Why, why in the world would I stop? I'm doing a great thing here. Why in the world would I stop this to come meet with you guys? They send him another invitation. Nehemiah says, nope. Another invitation. Nehemiah, not going to happen. They send him another, a fourth invitation. Nehemiah says, I have officially blocked you. This conversation... <laughs> Spam, I am not a fan of spam. So Sam Ballad and the boys were obviously desperate because the wall was done, the gates were soon to be hung, which means the city would be completely sealed off and protected, the Jews could live and worship and begin to flourish. So it's a critical moment and they're getting desperate. Now, leaders, it may seem like Nehemiah wasn't very nice. Why should I come talk to you guys? I'm doing something important. <laughs> now, I would agree, Nehemiah wasn't nice. But I want to suggest to you, nice is not a virtue. Nice is an anemic substitute for kindness. Kindness is an actual virtue. And so nice is, is a weakness. Nice is, is inoffensive and, and it's pandering. And it's interested, however, in being approved and being accepted. It's inherently selfish. And it's really kind of not impressive. Not at all. Nice people are susceptible to being taken advantage of by people who have ill motives. Kindness is strong. It's proactive. It's full of character. It seeks to do good for others because it is good. We just do good for people. But you can't take advantage of kindness because kindness will see right through it. It isn't interested in approval. People who are kind will be respected. People who are just nice will not. If you're, if you're nice, you'll find yourself pandering to people. You'll, you'll, you're so worried about what, what they may think about you, and so, you, oh, you don't want them to just think that you're somehow, uh, you know, whatever, aloof or not nice or wh whatever. Listen, get rid of that. Recognize it and become a kind person. Okay, here, here's, here's an example. If you're a boss and you're nice, and you have an employee that isn't performing well, because you're nice, you won't be able to talk to them clearly about their performance issues. And then, and then you'll kind of simmer and be mad, because why aren't they doing what they're supposed to be doing? And, and so you're, you're doubly, you're, you're you know, bringing harm upon your employee and yourself because you're walking around mad at your employee all the time, but they don't know what, what the problem is because you're nice. Nice won't face things squarely. But you have a hard time, you know, ending a conversation because you don't want to be the one to end the conversation because they, they may think you're not nice. They won't like you. Well, Proverbs 28, 23 says, whoever rebukes a man, that doesn't sound nice, will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Respect won't come from being nice, I guarantee you. Nehemiah definitely wasn't nice. Verse two says, Nehemiah 6, 2, they intended to do me harm. They intended to do me harm. The t now, the text doesn't say how he knew that, um, but I, I want to suggest to you that Nehemiah was exercising what we call discernment. This is a leader needs discernment. He was exercising discernment. Hebrews 5.14 says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So that's what discernment is, seeing things with moral clarity, discerning good from evil. That's good, that's evil. I recognize it, I see it. Other people might be muddy about it, but I can see it because I've practiced, I've exercised this to where it's sharp and I can see things clearly. 
Discernment is a power. It, it means to judge and distinguish. Many Christians are squeamish about this when it comes to you know, judging because every Christian and every heathen and their brother really knows Matthew 7.1, which is judge not lest you be judged, right? Like everybody knows that verse. You don't, have to, you don't have to be saved to know that verse. Let me tell you, everybody knows Matthew 7.1. And it's, it's probably, I think, the most misunderstood verse in all the Bible, at least potentially. Inigo Montoya would say, you keep quoting that verse, but I do not think that verse means what you think it means. Nobody ever quotes John 7.24, where Jesus said, judge with righteous judgment. Why doesn't anybody quote that verse? Well, we've watched the news for the last month or two, and we've, you know, seen people gathering by the thousands to protest Israel's so-called occupation and support Hamas's fight for liberation and Many of these people are people, you know, the people in our streets are people that Hamas would rape and kill if they got the chance. And yet, they're protesting for them. They're in favor of them. That would be like protesting in favor of the Nazis. I've heard so many podcast conversations of people trying to play both ends to the middle and find some, court of mor some form of moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas, and they have lost all discernment, all moral clarity. Israel is the only free country, democratically free country in that whole region. They have freedom of speech. They have free uh, freedom of the press. The press is super hard. On the, they criticize the government. They have free elections. And many people don't know this, but the Palestinian people, the Arab peoples, comprise 20% of the Israeli government. They are free there too. Israel has gone to greater lengths to warn the civilians of Gaza via leaflets and text messages and knock bombs on the buildings and so on in an effort to get them out of harm's way than any army ever in the history of planet Earth. It's ridiculous to accuse them of purposely killing civilians. Since Israel turned Gaza over to the Palestinians in 2005, Billions of dollars have been poured into Gaza via various countries, including Israel. And it was thought that this beautiful piece of land on the Mediterranean coast, gorgeous piece of land, that it would become sort of a Singapore, that the money would come in, they would build beautiful hotels, and that it would become just this beautiful resort-type area. The people who lived there would prosper. There would be plenty of money flowing in and so on. But in 2006, Hamas was elected as the government. And Hamas began taking the monies and building tunnels. Hundreds of miles of concrete tunnels with which they could be safe and they could travel and they could attack Israel. They poured the money into weapons and missiles, which they have been launching into Israel for going on 20 years now. Israel gave them the land. They forced the, their people, who were, the Jews who were living there, they forced them out. Israel did. It would be an advantage to Israel to have a, a prosperous Palestinian people in the Gaza. That's what they were thinking. They'll be prospering. They'll be doing great. And we'll have somebody, you know, in that southern section of our, of our nation. We wouldn't have to worry about them. The people of Gaza, as well as the Palestinians in the West Bank, they 
they don't recognize Israel as having a right to the land. They never have. The people are indoctrinated into hatred of the Jews. That's just a fact. You know, we were in Hebron uh, in Israel. Hebron's about 30, maybe 40 miles from Gaza. And we were visiting the site of Mamre. Mamre is the, the it's right in the center of Hebron, but Mamre's the place where Abraham and Sarah pitched their tent by the big oak trees, right? And God appeared to Abraham there and told him that he and Sarah would have a son by this time next year. And Sarah's, you know, in the next compartment of the tent and she chuckles, you know, thinking, what am I, I'm, on, I'm such an old lady, I don't think it's gonna happen. And, uh, and then, you know, Abraham's not a spring chicken either. So, so she chuckles at that. And the Lord says to Abraham, why did your, why did your wife laugh? <laughs> Abraham's like, uh. And Sarah hears that and says, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did. <laughs> anyway, we're at that spot. And there's a school right next door to this historic site. And it's a school of Palestinian boys, probably about eight 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, so kind of middle-ish school age, and, and we come into the site, and the kids are right, there. there's a fence in between us, a wire fence, and they start chucking rocks at us, We're like, whoa, what's going on? So we, so we got most of the group down into the site, and then a couple of us stayed back to talk to these Palestinian kids, and we said, hey, what's going on here? And we gave them some candy, I think, and so what, why, why are you throwing rocks at us? And he said, do you hate the Jews? This is coming out of a 10-year-old you know, kid. Do you hate the Jews? We hate the Jews. And I'm like, no, <laughs> we don't hate the Jews. We love the Jews. And we love the Palestinians too. Our God loves all people. And they kind of, Soften, but here's the point. They're in, the kids are indoctrinated into hatred. It's embedded in the culture. It's deeply rooted from the time that the kids are little. And so, to them, to the Palestinian people, and to Hamas and the Palestinian Authority especially, hatred of the Jews is virtuous. This is a high value of our culture. So Hamas today has demonstrated who they are. They make no secret about what their goals are. It's written into their charter. You can read it. You can see it. From the river to the sea, they want the Jews eradicated, gone. So Israel is acting with discernment, with moral clarity. And they have a duty to protect their people. Hamas must be rooted out completely. And yet the world is pressuring Israel to abandon what they know that they have to do. So too, Nehemiah is clear. He's clear about what he has to do. He knows who the enemies are. He knows what they want to do. They've made no uh, mistake about it, no bones about it. So when he gets invited to a high-level meeting with these other you know, political leaders, he says, nope, not going to do it. Wise leaders are discerning. And they'll be criticized for it. They'll be criticized for being unkind or harsh and so on. And as we'll see, the enemies of Nehemiah and the Jews will use all of this against them. So Nehemiah is a discerning person. Wise leaders are discerning. They use their power of discernment to distinguish between good and evil. They are decisive, even when their decisions may be interpreted by some as not being very nice. Secondly, number two, the enemy does not play fair, okay? You're, you're not on a, on a fair, play, even playing field. So just know that. They're not playing by the same rules. Verse five. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it, 
was written, quote, is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And so you've set up prophets to proclaim you concerning uh, you in Jerusalem. This is, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports, and he will come and let us take counsel. Or, so now, come let us take counsel together. So, th this, this is the ancient version of fake news. Sanballat sends his servant to Nehemiah with an open letter, an open letter. Normally, letters sent between dignitaries, people, you know, in high positions would be rolled up into a roll, uh, and they would be sealed with wax. They would pour melted wax onto the seam of the roll, and then the person sending the letter would press his signet ring into the soft wax, would then show the recipient, that, oh, this is official. It's coming from this person to whom the signet belongs. And so it, it, would, it would show that the letter was, you know, it, it wasn't opened, and so there's discretion being involved, and all of that information couldn't leak out. So sending Nehemiah an open letter, it was an insult to him, it was a sign of disrespect, and it was a clear indication that a smear campaign was underway, a smear campaign. So Sanballat tells Nehemiah, it's reported among the nations It's being reported, it's on CNN and MSNBC. We have many anonymous sources. You know, it used to be you can't use anonymous sources. Anybody remember back in the day? Where you had, to, you had to name them. They had to put their name to it. If it's going to go on the news, if you're a credible news organization, you've got you to name your sources. Now they do have one guy, Geshem, he was willing to put his name to it. So it's been reported. You and the Jews are actually building the wall because you plan to rebel against the Persian Empire. That's what's going on. You plan to fortify your position militarily. You're going to do away with elections so that you can become the king. You've got your people, your prophets, your nationalists who are now embedded within the populace and are ready to make the announcement that you are the king. We think January 6th might be a good day for you to do that. And then... <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't have gone there. But... But we want to bring you before a hearing on this, they say, in the letter. Listen, I get it. It's not, it's not my job to be political, okay? It, but it is my job to be biblical. And so I hear a lot of complaining in some Christian circles about, you know, politics in the pulpit. And I understand the concerns about that. But politics are woven throughout the Bible, because politics are, <laughs> some of you are happy about that. Woo, politics in the Bible. Yes, I'm on that team. <laughs> but they're in the Bible because politics have always been a part of life on a fallen planet. It, it's a part of the whole system here, right? And so, listen, because the Bible is a timeless book, it is a timely book. It's why we read this this, you know, 2,500-year-old writing. We're like, what the heck, man? That's today. That's happening right now. So it not only tells us about what happened in the past, it tells us what happens always. History repeats itself. There's only so many plays in the enemy's playbook. So the enemies of Nehemiah and of, and of God's people are accusing them of planning an insurrection this is all about you taking power and ensconcing yourself. Is it true? No. <laughs> Obviously not, not even close. It's a lie. It's a big lie. It's like a really big lie. Now, you know, Hitler and Mein Kampf famously, you know, used the 
the big lie to manipulate the people of Germany. Here's, here's what he said about it, kind of in a modern paraphrase. Here, here's the big lie. Never allow the public to cool off. Never admit a fault or wrong. Never concede that there may be some good in your enemy. Never leave room for alternatives. Never accept blame. Concentrate on one enemy at a time. Blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one, and if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. Any bells ringing for anybody on that? I think we're living in the time of the big lie. If the enemy can't divert you from your mission, He'll try and slander you and discredit you in the eyes of the people. So Nehemiah responds, it's more of a tweet really, verse eight. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your mind. Send. Nehemiah didn't hire a PR firm. He didn't get into a Twitter war. He just made a simple statement of truth. Hit send, done. So verse nine, again, Nehemiah discerning, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah, discerning, seeing clearly what was happening, prays to God for strength. Nehemiah knows that he is, to quote the Blues Brothers, he is on a mission from God. He's called by God. And so he's not laboring for anyone else's approval but God's. So he sees through the attacks of the enemy. He sees, as we'll see next week, that the enemy, they accuse, you've got prophets. Oh, they're embedded in the, in the population. At a certain point, they're gonna jump into action. They're gonna announce you as the king and they're gonna take over the big resurrection. January 6th, it's gonna happen. And in fact, next week we'll find that they, the enemies, have false prophets that they hired to go spread the lies. That's called projection in psych psychology circles, where the people are accusing you of this and that and the other, and it's, it's not true at all, but it's actually true of them. They're accusing you of the very things they are most guilty of. Listen, that, that's a feature of human nature, and it's in the Bible. Nehemiah knew that what he was doing in building the wall was not only for the people of God, but it was also to prepare for the Messiah who was coming. Malachi 3.1 says, suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come into the temple. Prophecy about Messiah, when he comes, he would come into the temple. Nehemiah knew that. Nehemiah knew there would need to be a wall and a gate that Messiah could go through and then a temple that he could enter into. Nehemiah was looking for the coming of the Lord and as he leads and builds, God's people are engaged, they're encouraged. Eventually the wall is done. Eventually the gates get hung. The, bu the building, however, didn't stop with the wall and the gates and all of that. Nehemiah would go on to build a pulpit We'll find out in chapter eight, so that Ezra could mount up on the pulpit and begin to preach the word so that revival could break out amongst God's people and so that the, the band would start to write fresh songs of praise for God and that people would get lit up for the Lord. The building was going on and it was ultimately in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Listen, we too, today, this morning, you and me, we are building, we are serving, we are doing so in preparation of the coming of the Lord. 
Jesus asks, will I find faith? Will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? And so I want to be able to say resoundingly, yes. At least find it right here at Lighthouse Church, right? And is, we don't know about anybody else. And we hope there's going to be faith all over planet Earth. But let's take care of this place. Let's take care of one another. And let's let there be a fire lit in us that longs for the coming of the Lord and that won't be dissuaded or called away by the sand ballots in our life to, to get away from serving our God and our King. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, you are coming back. And um, we're, we're going to do our best to serve you faithfully to answer the call that's on our life, the call to parent our children, the call uh, to serve in uh, ministry at our church, the call uh, to lead the business that you've blessed us with, the call uh, to teach in the school or the college that you put us in, Lord, the call to reach our neighbors with the gospel and disciple them. And as we do, we know we will probably be slandered, we will probably be lied about, but we are, we are in good company. And Jesus, they accused you of planning an insurrection. They accused you of uh, plotting to destroy the temple. So this is nothing new. And if they hated you, they will hate us. But Lord, we gladly, we gladly follow you, grabbing our cross and, uh, and going where you go. So we, we put to death, Lord, and, and die to uh, reputation. We, uh, repent of being nice and Lord embrace and desire Lord to be kind to be truly good to have good hearts and motives and actions so Lord purge us of that pandering thing in us that fear of man thing and help us to be strong and courageous people and Lord, finally, for those that are maybe in a hurting place this morning that need a fresh uh, dose of grace, Lord, your word says that we can come boldly before your throne, which is the throne of grace, to find help in our time of trouble. Church, before we come to the table this morning, uh, just my heart has been just kind of burden for those of you who are in a, in a tough moment. And so um, I believe that God wants to un unburden you this morning, that he wants to take the weight off of your shoulders. Cast your cares on me, Jesus said, or Peter said, because he cares for you. And so maybe it's a circumstantial thing where, man, finances are just so tight that you don't know how you're gonna make it through or you're in a tough place in your, in your marriage or in your health or or whatever, or maybe you're just depressed. And I, I, wanna, I wanna pray for you this morning. If you're willing, would you stand to your feet? Stand to your feet if that's you. You find yourself in a valley, and we're gonna believe. We're gonna, we sang that song. We believe for it. We believe. We pray in faith. And, and we believe that the, the prayer of a righteous person avails, that Jesus answers our prayers. And so as best you can, those of you who are standing, believe that the Lord is gonna bring relief to you, bring victory to you, bring deliverance to you. Lord, for every person standing right now, Lord, just acknowledging, which you, you, are, you are blessed by the simple acknowledgement. Lord, a contrite heart you will not despise. These are the sacrifices of God, the, the sacrifices that please you. That, that, 
that our people are standing right now acknowledging their need. That's, that's a, a good sacrifice. So Lord, would you, would you not only just be pleased by the sacrifice, but Lord, would you right now uh, bring relief to the burdened heart? Lord, where, where there is sort of hopelessness or sort of a cloud over emotions, just keeping joy at bay. Lord, I pray that you would chase that dark cloud away and that you would bring God-given joy to fill the hearts of your people, even in the midst of the difficult circumstance. Lord, that your people would find their joy in you Lord, for the person who right now is facing um, a, a tough road with health issues and medical treatments, God, we pray right now for that person. We pray for healing for them, Lord. We don't, we don't want to ask small because we're asking a great God who does great things. Is anything too hard for you? No. The obvious answer is no. So, Lord, would you heal that person? who just found out they are dealing with cancer. Lord, for the person who's worried that they're gonna lose their marriage and their family, God, we pray for a rescue mission that you would launch and let it start in the heart of the spouse who's standing right now and that you would get them out of the rut that they've been in and help them to see clearly and to think clearly with a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind towards their spouse, towards their family. And so God, we pray for miracles, for the touch of God upon every person who's standing, their situation, and Lord, we receive that touch in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're a believer here this morning, you can make your way to the communion table. And if you have a need that you know needs a touch of the Lord, you can, you can make that need known as you make your way. Perhaps you've committed a sin that's been haunting you and burdening you. Confess it. Confess it. Lord, I screwed up. I did this. I'm, I'm exposing it to you because I know that when I do, you are faithful and just. You're ju it's right for you to cleanse me of it. You're righteous to do that. And so, Lord, gladly, I'm ashamed of what I did, but Jesus bore my guilt and shame. So thank you, Lord. Cleanse me from this.